to let you know where we are, uh, after Solomon, uh, the king of Israel, one of David's sons, the, the monarchy in Israel just kind of went downhill really fast. And so the nation of Israel split, split into uh, two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern, Cation, northern kingdom had a series of really, really bad kings. And the worst of the kings, by, by anyone's count, by anyone's measure, was Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a wife that Ahab took from the Sidonian people who were uh, part of the enemies of God in the land, and uh, she brought in uh, Baal worship. Now, Baal was this evil god that the Sidonians worshipped, and it required child sacrifice. And so under Ahab and Jezebel, child sacrifice god Baal, became, that became the official religion of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so in 1 Kings, right, right before our passage in 1 Kings 18, God calls his prophet, his preacher, Elijah, to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he defeats them. And, and that's where we are right now in 1 Kings 19. So let's, let's pick up in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What, have you been do what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, 
Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll go follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and he went after Elijah, and he assisted him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment to reflect on it before we could preach. Now, if you'll do me a favor also, when you're, um, when you're keeping your Bibles open, could you also just put a, um, a finger or a bookmark or a dog-eared page or a whatever at uh, page 844 in Mark chapter 9? We're going to get there eventually, but I just want you to have it open if you'd like to look at it when we get there. Page 844, it's Mark chapter 9. But we're going to start... In 1 Kings 19, there on page 301. How do you keep hoping? How do you keep trusting when everything around you is falling apart? When every time you look at the news, there's another tragedy, there's another accident, you know, it can be hard to hope. You know, it's much easier to be like a character in one of my son's books that we read the other day. Uh, his name is Eeyore. Uh, he's a donkey. Here's a typical Eeyore interaction with Winnie the Pooh. Good morning, Eeyore, said Pooh. Good morning, Pooh Bear, said Eeyore gloomily. If it is a good morning, which I doubt, 
And you've, you've talked to people like that before, haven't you? I mean, you've probably felt that way before. I mean, maybe you came in here this morning and that's how you felt. Someone said, good morning. And you said, well, yeah, if it is a good morning, which it probably isn't. In fact, I know it isn't. You know, it, it's easy to be like Eeyore, to not get our hopes up. And it's actually, it's safer not to hope, really. Uh, to not dream, to not risk, to not trust. Uh, a poet once said this when I think he was in an especially uh, Eeyore-ish mood. This is what he said. Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. I mean, that's kind of true, isn't it? But, I mean, who wants to live that way? I mean, there's truth in it. If you never put your hope out there, it's never going to get crushed. There's a risk that we run when we hope and when we dream. Our dreams don't always come true. But what's much more difficult, and what I want to put before you this morning, it, what's much more difficult and better, I think, is to dare to dream in the face of disappointment. To keep pressing on when your hopes are completely demolished. When the deepest desire of your heart has been within your grasp and then it gets taken away. And I don't need to ask anyone here if they've felt that disappointment before. I think we all know what that feels like. But how do you keep hoping when you've lost heart? How do you stay faithful in the face of trouble and pain and disappointment? Well, that's exactly what Elijah is going to show us this morning. Because we're not joining Elijah on the mountaintop at Mount Carmel when he's victorious over all the 450 prophets of Baal, when he's at the high point of his career. We're looking at Elijah at the time of his greatest trial, his greatest trouble, and his most painful disappointment. We're looking at Elijah at rock bottom. We're joining Elijah at a time when he was just about ready to throw in the towel. But this is the beautiful thing. He doesn't. He remains faithful to his calling and to his God. And what I want to ask us this morning is, how was he able to do that? I want to know how he was able to do that. So I can stay faithful. So I can keep hoping. So I can keep trusting. And I think the answer is, he was able to stay faithful to God because God remained faithful to him. For us, because God is remaining faithful to his people his people can keep faithfully serving him. And in this passage, we're going to see God demonstrating his faithfulness to, to Elijah in three ways. By providing for Elijah, by listening to Elijah, and finally, by speaking. So first, we're, we're going to start here in, in verse 3. God, we're going to see God says faithful to Elijah and to us by providing what we need, even if it isn't what we want. So first, let's look at what does Elijah want? When we get to verse 3, what Elijah wants is he wants to quit. <laughs> Why does he want to quit? Why does he want to give up the ministry? Well, let's see. You know, he's already run from Jezreel, which is in the north, in Samaria, over 120 miles to Beersheba. He's run away from Jezebel, and the reason he's running away is... Uh, because he's just won the biggest, most decisive victory of his life over God's enemies. And it, it's kind of the Braveheart moment. You know what I'm saying? So he's on the field, 
and he's fighting the battle and he's got all of Israel behind him watching him and he's leading the charge and, and they take down all of Baal's prophets. All the bad guys get taken out. And then he runs ahead to the castle where Jezebel is. And he goes and, and he goes and he and when he gets there, he gets a message from Jezebel. And she says, this is what her message says. It's, it's right here in verse two. So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Elijah, I don't care what you and your God did. If you think I'm scared, I'm not scared. In fact, I'm not going to change anything that I'm doing and I'm going to hunt you down. And by the end of this day tomorrow, you're going to be as dead as all of those prophets. And Elijah, on, on the verge of this victory, he's still riding the crest of this big victory. He goes, well, I've got all of Israel behind me, right? So then he, he goes to charge the castle and he looks and no one's there. All of Israel has gone home. It's as though Braveheart's on the field and he leads the charge and he looks around and all the men of Scotland have gone home. And so when he sees that the battle's not over, he's totally crushed. He's totally disappointed. And he realizes, I, I don't have what it takes. I'm done. And so he retreats. And because he retreats, he feels like a failure. Uh, you can look in verse 4. This is what he says. He, he's in the desert. He's dropped off his assistant. Basically say, okay, uh, thanks for serving me. Uh, we're closing up the prophet's office. So you go home. Here's your, here's your box. Uh, that You know, the box that you give people when they get fired. Here's your, your box of stuff. Go home to your family. I'm just going to go out to the desert. And so he goes out to the desert, and this is what he prays in verse 4. He says, Lord, take my life. Lord, I'm no better than my fathers. For generations we fought and we prayed and we've preached against these evil kings and we've tried to overturn them. And I thought I might be able to do what no one else could do, but I, but I can't. It, it's too much. It's too big. The evil's too great. Just, just let me quit. But God in his faithfulness to Elijah doesn't let Elijah quit. He doesn't give him, he doesn't provide what Elijah wants. He provides what Elijah needs. He doesn't let him die, not at the hand of Jezebel and certainly not in the desert. He lets him sleep, which is a good lesson for all of us, I think, that I mean, sometimes you just need to take a nap. <laughs> you know, so Elijah, he's worn out. He's just dog tired. And he goes and he takes a nap. And then I want you to pay attention to what God does here. And I think the text is wanting you to pay attention, too. Because if you look here in verse 5, there's this, there's this little phrase, and it repeats all the way out through this, through this whole chapter, and it's going to let you know what you need to pay attention to. And each time it's going to say exactly what God is doing in the situation. Right there in the, in the second half of verse 5, it says, and behold. And when, when you see that, especially in the Old Testament, it's like, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or when Paul says, oh, this is a wise and trustworthy saying, he's saying, hey, look at this, pay attention to this, underline this, this should be in bold print, and this is a close-up of the camera that's moving, and, and saying, look, look at what God is doing right now. He's not letting him die, he's providing an angel. 
And, and after that, he doesn't just provide an angel. He provides miraculous food, uh, bread, fresh baked bread in the desert and water. And so Elijah eats and he drinks and then he falls back asleep. And the, and the angel that God provides wakes him back up and he, and, he, and he encourages him. He says, you've got farther to go. Go, go and, and journey to go meet God. Now, I know what you might be saying. This, is, this might be a little hard to relate to because I don't know how many of you have been in the desert and God has sent a miraculous uh, messenger, an angel to give you miraculous bread that lasts for 40 days and 40 nights. So what does this have to do with us? But will you notice, God doesn't give Elijah everything that he wants, but he does give him exactly what he needs. And maybe God isn't giving you everything you want right now. Maybe you're not getting miracle bread. Maybe you're not getting an angel, but maybe, maybe you get a friend. Maybe you get a sandwich. Maybe you get to take a nap. I mean, God can do extraordinary blessing in the lives of his people using really ordinary means. Food, encouragement, rest. He doesn't give us everything we want, but he gives us little, simple tastes of his provision. He's providing what his servant needs, even though it's not everything that he would like. And it's exactly what Elijah needs to get him to where God wants him to go, which is the mountain of God, Horeb. So we've seen that God has provided for Elijah what he needs, and now God is drawing Elijah in. And he's going to listen to Elijah at the mountain. So starting here in verse 8, we're going to see God listens to Elijah. And he listens to Elijah. This is, this is beautiful. He listens like a covenant king. Elijah arose and he ate and drank and he, and he goes to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. And what you've got to notice when you see that word, Mount Horeb, that's Moses' mountain. That's Mount Sinai. I mean, that's the place where Moses did all of his covenant business with Israel and God. That's where Moses go, went with all the people, that's where God gave the Ten Commandments. That's where uh, Moses interceded for the people of Israel after they started worshiping the golden calf. I mean, that's where God comes down in his glory and Moses gets hidden in the rock. So God passes by. I mean, this is a really, really important place in the, the history of the people of Israel. This is where covenant business happens. So when God calls Elijah to the mountain, it's like he's calling him to his judges chambers. He's calling him to the office of the covenant king. And so Elijah's approaching here. And, and he starts to register a complaint against the people. Now, he's registering a complaint, but I don't think Elijah is complaining. I don't think Elijah is whining here. Because when you look in verse 10, what's he say to God? God asks him, what's your business? What are you doing here, Elijah? What have you come to say to me? And Elijah says, starting in verse 10, God, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. Yet his life is in danger, but he's not complaining. He's jealous for God's cause. The thing that he's 
complain against the people of Israel about is that they've forsaken God, not that they've forsaken him. So just a question for us. When you get angry, what do you get angry about? It's really angry. It's really easy in our culture today to be outraged constantly over all kinds of things from politics to to coffee cups to, to whatever. There's always someone complaining about something. But what do you get angry about? Do you get angry like Elijah is angry? Do you get angry for God's sake? Elijah's pleading God's cause. He's not pleading his cause. And so he's coming before God, and he's registering a complaint, and the covenant king listens. He listens patiently, and he listens to the deepest longings of Elijah's heart. And we see here, finally, when Elijah starts unburdening his heart before the Lord, what's been bothering him? I mean, what, what made him so despondent earlier when he's sitting under the tree and wanting to die? Elijah wants, more than anything else, to see revival in Israel. I mean, that's what he's coming to God and he's saying, he's saying the people have forsaken the covenant. You, your people have turned their back on you. They're cheating on you, God, with these false gods. Um, just look, uh, probably the, the page right before on 1 Kings 18. This is right before Elijah brings fire down uh, onto the offering in front of all the prophets. It's right before he, he, he just totally slam dunks and wins the, uh, the contest against the prophets of Baal. This is what he prays to God in the moment of truth. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are God so that you will turn their hearts back to you. That's the prayer of Elijah's heart. And God brings the fire to the offering, but, but he doesn't bring the revival. The people don't turn back. So Elijah goes to the mountain and he cries out to God again. He says, God, I'm very jealous for you. God, my heart is beating after you. God, I love you. And I'm all alone. God, will you answer me? Did you know that you can pray this way to God? That, that, that you could pray just rough draft, raw how are you feeling unburdening your heart before the Lord? I mean, he's inviting us to come to him this way. And what God does next is absolutely incredible. He doesn't just stay in the judges' chambers. He comes down close and he speaks to Elijah face to face. It's almost like a, a father and a child. You know, the, the child's angry, the child's frustrated, the child's disappointed, and so screams and yells and and speaks from his heart, kind of rough draft, raw, full of emotion. And the father hears, and then he says, okay, come sit in my lap now. Tell me again, what's on your heart? And so God comes down, and, and this is incredible. Elijah registers his complaint, and then this invitation comes in verse 11. God says, go out on the mountain and stand before the Lord. God's going to speak to you face to face. It's that important. And it said that the Lord passed by. He passes by in power, in a wind, like a hurricane, and an earthquake, and in fire. But the presence of the Lord wasn't there. And then in verse 13, when Elijah comes out to stand before the Lord... 
you get this sense that Elijah knows he's about to have a face-to-face meeting with his God. And how do you know that? In the text, this is what he does. Look, this, this is absolutely incredible. Elijah knows that he's about to meet God face-to-face because he covers his face. Because every Israelite knows what God said to Moses on this very same mountain in Exodus 33:20. Moses wanted to see God's glory, just like Elijah. He wanted to speak to him face to face. And he, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one will see me and live. So Elijah covers his face because God's calling him out in front of him. And the picture we have here is of a God who is drawing his hurting people close to them, who's taking time to stoop down and listen as they unburden them hearts. He's giving them permission to speak freely. When you're in pain, when you're disappointed, at the core of your being, when you mourn and weep and you feel alone, who do you cry out to? I'm sorry, English teachers in the room. To whom do you cry out? At that moment when you're in the car... And you get the text message, there's been an accident, you get the message from the doctor's office, the test results didn't come back, you open the bill in the mail, and you look at it and you wonder how in the world you're going to pay for it, and you start panicking, and your heart starts beating. What do you do? Who do you speak to? Who do you ask to listen to you? God's waiting to listen. When his people are in trouble, the sovereign Lord listens. He's faithful to listen. He's faithful to provide. But thankfully, God just doesn't stop there. Because if he only listened, but he never spoke, there wouldn't be much help. I mean, a a goldfish can listen to your problems. But God just doesn't listen. After he's done listening, he speaks. Because he's a living God who speaks to the pain of his people. So finally, we're going to see God remains faithful by speaking his word to his people. First, we're going to see in verse 13 here. Let's just just look down verse 13. When God's word comes to Elijah, it comes with unexpected power. I mean, we would expect that the word of God is powerful. He's God. And he comes on the mountain, and, and it's earthquake, it's fire, it's wind. I mean, it's really impressive. It's visual. It's powerful. You can't ignore it. And it's building up this suspense, like, what's going to happen next? I mean, how's God going to top the fire and the earthquake and the wind? But then there's that word, behold, again. <laughs> And that final word, behold, is right there in chapter, th- right there in verse 13. It's like it's all leading up to this moment when God speaks. And it's totally not what you expect. Because he speaks, not in an earthquake, not in a hurricane, not in fire, but he speaks with a whisper. It comes with this unexpected power. This is the high point of the whole passage, but we're supposed to be caught off guard because there's this, instead of greatness, there's smallness. It's a low whisper. 
And where is God most present? I mean, it's not in the fire, it's not in the earthquake, it's in the least noticeable thing. And I think what God's trying to tell Elijah is, even when my word comes faintly, when it's quietly, when I'm speaking so lowly that it feels like science, silence, God, God is saying, Elijah, I'm still present. I think God is teaching Elijah that even when it seems like God's work is being ignored, that God's still working. That even when it seems like God's not doing something spectacular, God's still at work. And he's trying to show Elijah this, that if God chooses to act in an unexpected, ignorable way, if he chooses to speak away in a way that not everyone's going to notice, it doesn't mean he's not speaking. It just means that the power of the kingdom of God is going into mustard seed mode. It's getting small, but it's still powerful. So that for Elijah and for us, even if it seems like the evil in the world is shouting and raging, and it just seems like God is whispering, that God's still at work, that he's still speaking, that his power's still moving. And I think we're supposed to see here a contrast between the whisper of God and the rage and the roar of Jezebel. Notice Jezebel gets the message right at the beginning of the passage and she's raging against Elijah and she's making these wild threats. Not one of them comes true. Her threats are as hollow as smoke. But everything that God says, every single thing that God promises to Elijah, it comes true. The words of Jezebel are totally empty. The words of God never fail. And when God speaks his word, with that unexpected power, he speaks both judgment and grace. You see, and this is, this, this is the truth throughout the whole Bible. When God speaks to his, his people, it, God's word moves into the world, it moves into creation, it moves into culture, and it both judges and it saves. First, you see the judgment. It's... This is the obvious thing for Elijah. I think this is what Elijah's expecting. In verse 15, God tells Elijah his plan. He says, go, put a team together. We're going to do it. We're going to judge uh, the, the evil kings. We're going we're to take care of the evil in the land. So I'm putting a team together. Hazael, Jehu, Elisha. Go, get the team together. God's saying, I've noticed the evil. I'm not going to let it go unpunished. But, but that's not all he says, is it? Because in verse 18, God says something that's so incredible and it's so unexpected that I think this is exactly what Elijah needed to hear. He doesn't speak judgment. He also promises grace. And this should be surprising to us because Elijah is on the mountain where Israel had made their covenant with God. And when they made a covenant with God, this is, this is about what it sounded like. Israel comes to God and they say, God, we'll be your people. We'll be faithful to you. We'll keep covenant with you. You be faithful to us. We'll keep serving you, God, and you keep you know, protecting us and being our God. And, and that's the covenant. It's this two-sided agreement. But then when Elijah comes and he's talking to God on the mountain, he's talking to the covenant king, he's saying, hey, your people have broken the covenant. They've been unfaithful. God, what are you going to do? Is God going to let go of his end of the bargain? 
Is God going to be unfaithful because his people have been unfaithful? What does it say in verse 18? No. God says something incredible. Even though my people have been unfaithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm going to leave a remnant for myself. So that no matter what evil might come upon them, 7,000 are going to be saved. Which means just a, a full number. There'll be this full number of people. All of the people that I've planned to save will be saved. You're not alone, Elijah. I'm I'm saving this remnant by grace. But I think there's one more element of God's word here that we need to see. When God speaks his word to his people, it empowers his people to trust and to hope in God. Because Elijah never gets to see what he most longs for in his lifetime. He didn't get to see the nationwide revival. He didn't get to see the end of Jezebel. He doesn't even get to do the judging. Remember, Hazael, Jehu, Elisha, they're the ones who are going to do all the work in his place. He spends the rest of his life working for something that he never gets to see. Having to work and trust that God was going to do something after his days were over. And so when God speaks his word, he actually doesn't give Elijah what he wants. But he does something better. He promises to be with Elijah, to stick with him as he works and as he waits. This is what a pastor said when he was looking at this passage. He said, you know, when a voice whispers in your ear, you ought to have your heart's desires. You can be assured that that voice always speaks with a hiss from a forked tongue. But when you hear a voice that says, you see that treasure? That thing you want more than anything else in the world, you can't have it. But you can have me instead. You can be sure where that voice comes from. It comes from the Lord. So Elijah doesn't get to see. He only gets to hope. He only gets to be patient. Just like Moses. who leads his people to the edge of the promised land. Elijah hears the promise, but he never gets to see the fulfillment. Remember, God brought Elijah, uh, um, he brought Moses right to the edge of the promised land. He said, this is what you've been working for. This is the prize for your people. This is the treasure that you've been longing after, that, that, that you've waited for for your whole life. And guess what? You don't get to see it. You don't get to enter into that. And, and that needs to be okay with you, Moses, because I've got to be enough for you. And that's what he says to Elijah here. That's what he's saying to some of us. But he's given us reason to hope and wait Because this isn't the last time that we see Elijah in the Bible. So go ahead and and turn to uh, Mark chapter 9. This is the last time we see Elijah. In the transfiguration, Jesus has brought his friends up to the mountain. And it says, starting in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his inner circle, and he led them up a high mountain. And there he was transfigured before him, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Mark this. When Elijah's there on the mountain... He sees Jesus in his full glory with Moses. And he's looking at this little community of disciples who are going to found the church, who are going to spread the gospel, who are going to spread the glory of God all over the face of the earth. 
And I think at that moment, Elijah says, this is just like you, God. This is way better than I could have hoped for. This is way better than I would have expected. I'm so glad you did it your way and not my way. God, your, your word went out and people ignored it, but it bore fruit. And God, you, you, you chose to wait. You chose to wait until, until Jesus came. The fullness of your glory. And now I've finally gotten to see the thing that I've longed for. I, just, I love that God brought both Moses and Elijah, the two people who didn't get to see what they wanted, and they get a front row seat to Jesus Christ in the beginning of the church. And I think Elijah's looking at that little community of disciples and he's going, oh, you're the ones I've been waiting for. You're the ones who are going to make the revival happen that I've longed to see my whole life and I never got to see. And I think Elijah would say to us, do you see Jesus? Do you see how God's provided for you? And we might call out to Elijah and we'd say, Elijah, but hey, it feels like the world's against us. It feels like the people in power don't understand us. We feel like aliens and strangers sometimes in our own nation. And Elijah said, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the deal. That's how it's been for God's people. That's how it was for me. But look at Jesus. Look at what God's promised. Look at what he's given you. He's provided for your needs. He's listened to your pain. He's given you his word. And his word never fails. And I think Elijah would say, because God's been faithful to you, you can be faithful to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for keeping your covenant with us, with your people. Even though we're unfaithful, even though, um, Lord, we forget. Lord, you provide grace upon grace upon grace. You supply our needs. Lord, you listen to us. Lord, and you've given us Christ. You've given us your word. Lord, and even now you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to follow after you. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they'd keep hoping, that they'd keep trusting, and they'd keep fighting uh, to be faithful to you. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. My, my exhortation, my challenge is, what, what team are you on? Or just, you just come, you sit, and you leave? You're excited about Christ Community Church. You're just not on a team. Whose arm are you holding up? What what frontline ministry are you involved in? What what if a year from now you'd look back and say, well, yeah, we we went through this Bible and it was great, but I I never was I never got to know anybody. I never got on a team. I never went out and, and took any risk. I, I didn't do any of that. I don't want that to happen one more year. I want you to be on a team. And you remember the small group study you did, the sermon series, but you have names. You start having names that are part of your last chapter. You and I have to be on a team. We can get so much further, so much faster together, working on you internally and doing what God wants us to do externally. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful.